Well, good morning. Thank you for that prayer, Jamie. Um, I've been battling... Well, the smoke was not my friend last week. I'll just say that. So I've been battling a cough, and I'm just praying. Ken's ready on the soundboard to mute it if I go into convulsions or something. But um, hopefully I have cough drop, I have water, I have everything. Hopefully um, it will be good. Um, I'm, my name is Melinda Reed, if we have not had the privilege of meeting. And I've been on the teaching team here at High Point for a long time. Um, and it is just, I, I was driving here today thanking God for the privilege of getting to preach the word. It's just a joy that I I can't really describe. But I will tell you that this message today is hard for me on multiple levels. First of all, Satan has just been attacking me, like I said, with my voice, with my throat, with my cough, with my energy. I mean, literally, um, what what Kevin won't tell you is we've changed my time to speak like three times. He was just about to boot me if I wouldn't have been able to speak today. Satan has tried everything to keep me from being here. So that's been hard. It's also hard for me because this is probably my last time, well, it is my last time to, to speak as part of High Point. Some of you may or may not know that Greg and I have bought a house up north to be close to our daughter, and we'll be moving in the next month or so after renovations, which you will hear about later. And so I'm, it's a bittersweet for me today. I'm a little sad. Today's actually my mom's birthday, and I was... Um, trying to decide what to wear because that's always important and um, I just rebelled and said you know what mom I'm wearing tennis shoes but I got a pink jacket on so it's okay and it's also hard for me today because this message I'm just telling you I struggle with the need for control and I don't know if you're if it's going to resonate with you but I need it so I'm going to share it with you and just come along with me for the journey you've heard about how you get typecast in the play I was typecast for this sermon I'm just telling you and I would love to just start by inviting God to speak to our hearts would you just pray with me for a moment God, I just confess to you that this is something that I struggle with, and I pray that there would be nothing of my own that would be heard today, that your word would stand alone, God, and that we would leave here changed. Just guard us from any distractions that may be in our minds right now, God, and speak to our hearts. In your name I pray, amen. Well, we've been talking about the struggle within, right? And we're ending the series today with the struggle of control. Well, I come from a long line of control freaks. Those that struggle with control. We might say that we're just more efficient than other people. I come from a long, I lived in an area, and and my dad was a cop, need I say any more. There was just, control was part of the thing, it's part of some people's personality, and if you think that that's not you, just wait a second, because I have some things for you. My need for control has been put to the test the last three decades as I've struggled with my health and trying to control those things, as I've tried to navigate being a parent and, and, and working and, and functioning in ministry um, as a female, but also as a mom and trying to do, be the best pastor I can be, but the best mom I can be. I've struggled in balancing when I was caring for my parents from a long way away. All those things, I struggled with wanting to take control. 
all. So you would think that I would be a proficient speaker today in this. And I'm just here to tell you, I'm just part of the struggle and we'll just work through it together. And if you're thinking, you know, Melinda, I really don't struggle with this. So I'm going to just check out for a minute. Let me just ask you a few questions. When you're driving, do you tend to coach people as you drive or try to control them? Maybe, I'm just saying maybe you speed up and slow down in front of somebody to make a point or you maybe give them the look. I'm just, it, maybe when you're driving that might come out or if that's not you and you go to pick up your groceries at Walmart, which now they don't have bags, so they pack them for you in the car. And I don't know, I'm just asking for a friend. Do you ever want to repack the way they pack it? <laughs> I, I don't struggle with that at all. Um, or are your kids in, under scrutiny in public because you want them, you want to make sure that you protect that facade of, 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 of what people think of you, or maybe at work when a project is due and your partner is slow, you step in and do the work for them. Well, my friends, you struggle with control. We need control that's part of our sickness within, our sinful nature. And let me just tell you, mine has been put to the test the last month as we've been doing a few things on this house that we bought that needed a little work. Well, I'm just going to scroll a couple pictures. I had to show that one because I got, we did agree that we were going to take a wall down, which I've always wanted to say that, take a wall down. Uh, but what turned out, what started out as a little bit of work has now become, I was just there yesterday, the only thing that is left is the bathtub in the master bath. So you can imagine my struggle with this control thing. Greg, I've learned that it doesn't work like it does on HGTV. You know, when it's over in an hour and they always find, there is problems, but they always find that extra budget, which that's a lie. I'm just telling you, it doesn't work that way. And it's all done. I was like, oh, we can, we can work on this house. This looks fun. Yeah, no, it's not fun. My husband is in his happy place. This is what he loves. I mean, him and my son-in-law, this is like bonding. Mm, like this is like manhood. And I'm doing everything I can to not suck the joy out of the room. Because here I am with the spreadsheet because somebody has to have it, making sure that all the spending is correct and that we're reallocating. Do we know where we are with the budget? Again, sucking the joy out of the room. And I've learned that nothing, absolutely nothing, well, most everything doesn't go as planned. It's taking longer. It's costing more. It looks completely different than I thought. And I just have laughed that God is asking me to speak on control. So just work with me. This is actually for me. You guys can just peek in and, you know, join me. But I need this message. I looked up. Well, the truth is, and you may want to write this down. The only thing that we can control is our response to our lack of control. Because let me just, let me just tell you, you don't have control. We don't have control over anything. So the only thing that we can control is how we respond to the lack of control. So I looked up control in the dictionary because like Tara, I don't have as much energy as Tara this morning, but I do like words. And, and this is what Webster says about the word control. To exercise restraint or directing influence over. 
to regulate or to have power over to rule or to reduce the incidence or the severity of. So reduce, rule, and regulate. Does any of that sound familiar? I'm like, whoa, that's what I do every day. Regulate, you know, reduce, rule. I don't really like that word. I call it different things. Manage, you know, supervise. Those sound better. Robert Mullahan said this, almost from the moment of birth, we engage in a struggle for control of the portion of the world that we live in. Children on the playground, parental boundaries, manipulation. Can we create enough of a secure structure around our lives that we will be able to control life's adversities? That's where we want control. We want to minimize impact, right? Minimize pain, minimize the hardship that we have. So we want to pull that in. Well, when things are out of control, I don't know about you, but I like to do something that I can control. I love to organize. When something is crazy in my life, I like to organize or clean. Because the reason is because it feels like you have control over something. Because it's part of the sickness within, and we're, like, again, we're closing out this series. This is where we go to look about the sickness within. It's not to a book that I've just read. And even though I just want to say for those of you streaming online or those of you who may be becoming, have only been coming a few times to High Point, whether we're in a sermon series, a topical series, or in a book of the Bible series, this is the source that we go to. This is always where we're going to go. So you never have to doubt that this is going to be where it is. So that's what we're going to do today. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn. It's easy. But turn to the book of Genesis. We're going to start at the very beginning with the story of Abram and Sarai, or you may know it as Abraham and Sarah. And, and if you remember in Genesis 12, God asked Abram and Sarai to leave. And they, he said, leave to a place that I will show you. How do you like that? Hey, pack up your bags, everything, leave your family, and I'll show you where we're going to go. Okay, well, they did that. And God led them. This is some 10 years later where we're going to find this story. And, and fast forward to chapter 15, God promises Abraham an offspring because they have not had any kids. And by the way, when he left, he was 75. Abraham was 75. How do you like that, parenting a teenager when you're 100? I don't think that I would like that. In chapter 15, verse 5, God makes this promise. He took Abram aside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If you're able to count them, your offspring will be that numerous. He promised Abram and Sarai that they were going to have a baby. Well, we're going to come into the story some 10 years later. Now, join me in chapter 16. This will pop up here on the screen. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him. Again, this is 10 years after God had told them this. But she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. And Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband. Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for 10 years. He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she saw that she... when she saw that she was pregnant. Her mistress became contemptible to her. 
And then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she became pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between you and I. They have a problem. Sarah and Abram had a problem. God had promised them that they would not just father a child, that they would father nations. They would parent nations. Now, I'm thinking of Sarah as as being 75. She was 10 years younger than Abraham. And I'm thinking every morning when she's looking in the mirror at the gray hairs and the wrinkles, she's thinking, what, when, how, Greg and I struggled um, with infertility for five years. Okay, five years seemed like an eternity, and we were in our 20s. Like, I'm trying to wrap my head around what she was thinking. So Sarah acted presumptuously. She presumed that she was too old, that maybe God had forgotten, that she wasn't doing something right, that they hadn't heard right. She presumed something that wasn't true, and she took control of something that wasn't hers to control. Maybe it was the wrinkles she saw every day. Maybe it was the social stigma of not being able to have a child. In this patriarchal society, that was a woman's job. And when you could not bear a child, there was a social stigma to that. A cast, maybe she felt cast out. Maybe she had been talked about in the village one too many times and she said, I've got to fix this situation. Maybe she was insecure with her relationship with Abraham. All we know is that she asked Abraham and he agreed. Now, I want you to pause here just a minute and think, can you relate to Sarah? Have you ever grown impatient with the situation? Maybe a relationship that you've grown impatient with someone that you, you want to try to control their behavior or response to you. Maybe you've become impatient with a child or you've become impatient at work with that job, that promotion that you thought you, were gonna, that you should get and you start to take things into your own hands. My friends, Sarah is not that different than you and I. She lacked a pause in her spirit. And she acted in haste to try to control something. Now the culture, what she offered, this sounds crazy to us, that she offered her slave, first of all, that she had a slave, Hagar, and said, hey, go sleep with my husband. That, that seems weird, but that was a solution in that day when you were barren. And, and they would actually be, this would actually be Sarah's child. God stepped aside and he let the consequences happen. And we're still experiencing the consequences of that today, which I'll talk about in just a little bit. So when we feel this temptation to control something, it is because of our sinful nature. It's because of this sickness that we have within that we've talked about. And I just want to give you a few things to think about today. And I'm going to ask you some reflection questions as we go along that I'm going to actually ask you to tackle this week. So would you, would you just work with me here of what we could learn from this? First of all, our sinful nature can cause us to tighten the grip on control. We have this nature to bring things in. And why do we do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's learn from Sarah. She became impatient. We become impatient. Sarah was, in her defense, 10 years is a long time. And I don't know if she just woke up one day and thought, I 
I can't do this anymore. I've got to fix this. Whatever it was, we know she became impatient because something caused her to act. And let me just tell you, Satan loves impatience. He loves it. He camps there because when we're tempted to act or to react instead of act, he is right there in our business. He loves to have us there because we're vulnerable, we're weak. But what we have to do is we have to ask the question, do we act or do we wait? If Sarah would have asked this question, would she have waited? Would she have trusted another day? We should only act when God clearly gives us the responsibility and the authority to do so. Maybe if God said, okay, Sarah, this is the way I'm going to fulfill it. But she didn't wait for that. She became impatient. We often just want to relieve the pressure. Is anybody guilty of that? Maybe you interact with your child or or intervene when you need to let them feel the consequence of their behavior. Oh man, I've done that. But the pressure feels so strong that you just want to relieve it. Impatience causes that. Romans 12, 12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, persistent in prayer. Impatience robs us of the growth that waiting brings. Sarah missed out. I don't know, I don't know what God's plan was, but she missed out on that. It robbed her that her impatience robs her. So think about this. Is this action from God or am I wanting instant gratification or relief? So we also fear the unknown. In general, we don't like the unknown. Even you adventure people, which I know there's a lot of you out there that like all those crazy sports and stuff where you don't have control. But we, in general, don't like to, to see the future and not know what's coming. We like to know what is coming. Sarah's fear was possibly fueled by culture. She didn't have an infertility clinic to go to. She didn't have a doctor to seek. And she became fearful of, how am I going to have a baby? I've I've got to take this. God, you're obviously asleep. You're obviously, something is going on. So I am going to take this because I'm scared that I'm not going to have this baby. And I'm telling you, any of you women and men that have have wanted a child so desperately, you know what that feels like. It can overwhelm you. Abraham had fears too. He had risked everything to follow God. Don't you know he was thinking, okay, God, what's this this plan? You didn't tell me it was going to be 20 years. What's the plan? Fears fuel our need for control. Even you fearless adventure seekers, we fear rejection when we don't meet the mark of our boss at work. Maybe we fear the financial crisis that may be coming in our personal finances. We can have paralyzing fear of our health and the future, maybe of a future of one of our children that has gone astray. Fear of betrayal when we're trusting someone that has betrayed us, but we're choosing to trust them again. We can fear what might happen. Fear fuels our need for control. Isaiah 41.10, God says, don't fear for I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'll strengthen you. I will hold on to you with my hand. 
Friends, we can't control things while we hold on to God. It's physically impossible. Because when we're holding on to God, we are letting go of that grip of control. So I ask you, do ask yourself, do my fears have a grip on me? So fear and, and, and fear and impatience affected Sarah, but also disappointment overtook her. Think about how she felt. She watched the women in the village have child after child after child. The disappointment that she felt, the disappointment in, with God, like how could you set me up with this promise and then not fulfill it? She felt hurt and rejected and Satan loves disappointment and its cousin discouragement because they go together. Because when we're there, he just is able to creep in to our thoughts to our actions, to our perspective. When we're overwhelmed with disappointment, we often try to triage our feelings. Now, what I mean by that is we kind of become negative because we want to protect ourselves from feeling disappointed. I did this when we struggled with infertility. I just didn't want another negative pregnancy test. So I would just assume the worst is the way I protected my heart. But that's not where Jesus is. He doesn't want us to live in this disappointment, in this Eeyore complex of, well, it's probably not going to happen. Confession, remodel, yes, I've been a little Eeyore. Greg's not here this service, so please don't ask him. Um, it's easy to look at the downside when you're, when you're feeling disappointment. Proverbs 4 tells us to guard our hearts above anything else. That's where disappointment, discouragement, impatience, sadness, that's where it lives. So we have to guard it at all costs. So ask yourself this, is there any area of my life that disappointment is leading me to control? The disappointment is making me do this. I also think that perspective was lost, that Sarah lost perspective. Perspective is everything. All you have to do is watch a sports game with a replay to see how perspective is. I can be screaming at the refs, not that I would ever do that, but like just hypothetically, there's no way that's a foul. And then, you know, they show it from another angle and you go, oh, yeah, that was a foul. Perspective is everything in photography, in our relationship. As I get older, I'm telling you, perspective is everything. It's so much different when you have more to look at. Maybe you get hyper-focused on that number on the scale. and You lose perspective. You're upwardly mobile for that job that you've been wanting and you lose perspective. You get so wrapped up in what your plan is that you lose perspective. I'm telling you that Sarah's loss of perspective, we are still paying for today. All the unrest in the Middle East was predicted in the Old Testament and it has come true and it's because she took control of something that she wasn't to control of. And Ishmael and the 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 division of, between Ishmael and Isaac, that, that all started because she tried to control something 
that didn't seem like that much. We all need to think about that and breed perspective from that. Are you in a place of lost perspective today? Does that resonate with you? Can you only see this day, this moment, this challenge, and you cannot see anything because you're looking solely at that? Well, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 121, I lift my eyes where? I lift my eyes to the hills. That, that's where my help comes from. That's where Jesus is. That's where perspective is. Sarah didn't do that. So I want you to ask yourself, where do I lack perspective that might be hindering my faith? Sarah also had a deficit of faith. Faith never tries to force God to act. I'll say that again. Faith never tries to force God to act. He invites us. He leads us, he inspires us, but it doesn't, we don't force God to act. Somewhere along the way, Sarah forgot that God was faithful. She stopped believing that he was faithful. She had a leak in her faith. No matter what the deficit was, it was enough that she made a poor decision because she didn't believe. Ishmael was a result of the work of the flesh not the spirit. Isaac was the result of the divine activity of God and that God did work it out, didn't he? Some 13, 14 years later, I mean, Abraham was almost 100. Try parenting a newborn, waking up with nighttime feedings with that. But God fulfilled his promise in spite of the actions that were taken out of turn. Faith really does matter. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faithfulness is how we believe God and how, that, how we respond in that belief. That determines our level of faith is by what we believe about God, but it's really how we respond through it, isn't it? Because we can say God is everything. God is Alpha, the Omega. He's the beginning, the end. He's everything. But it's how we respond to tension that displays our level of faithfulness, isn't it? Because Sarah may have said with her mouth, God is good, God is faithful. But with her actions, she said something different. Rather than controlling people or situations, not that I ever try to do that. We rest in the sovereignty of God. I pray that God's sovereignty would literally be the quotations of everything in my life. Wouldn't that be beautiful? If in any situation that the parentheses around it is God's sovereignty. That's how I see it. Wow, that, that releases everything. Releases the stress, reinforces the promise, May God's sovereignty be my quotation for every situation. Ask yourself, am I forcing my agenda on God or resting in his sovereignty? So those are some things that I think that we can learn from Sarah, but really like, so what? Like, what, what does that matter to us? How can we apply that today? Well, Craig Rochelle says it really well. He said, what we attempt to control the most often reveals where we trust God the least. Ouch. 
where we try to control is really where we have the most need for spiritual formation. So it's really, God sees it as an opportunity of how we can grow. It likely exposes our vulnerability spiritually. So I want to ask you, what do you try to control the most? I hope by now you've not saying nothing. Is it money? Is it your kids? Is it other people? People's opinion of you, the environment that you work in, live in, your work life, your kids' success, your marriage success, your health. What is it that you feel the need to take back from God and say, this, this, is, this is my God, I, I, I'm not sure you've got it. Here's the answer. The freedom really comes from surrender. The freedom from control, the need to control, isn't this ironic? It's surrender. That's really, it's that easy. We have no power to control, so why don't we just surrender? There is such freedom in surrender. We give up disappointment, we give up discouragement, we give up impatience, we give up all the things, but we hold on to them. I'll let you know if I need you, God. I got this. Can you just come alongside my way? Let me know how that works for you. One of my favorite scriptures, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't rely on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. He'll direct your path. Don't rely on your own understanding. You see, I'm so guilty of that because I think I'm relatively smart on some days. And I just naturally go to logic and reason. It's part of the way God wired me. I tell him that all the time. God, you are the one that made me this way. But it combats surrender. It combats the trust and faith that he's inviting. The sickness within us causes us to lean on our own understanding. And we resist Abraham and Sarah eventually surrendered to God's plan. I don't know, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what that looked like other than they did. So I want you to also reflect on this. Where do I most resist surrender and lean on my own understanding? I want you to think about that. But I want to leave you with the most important part. Overcoming the sickness within can only be accomplished through the Holy Spirit. Only, only, only. It's not about, I will not be controlling. I will not be controlling. Remember when Kevin rode the bike around a few weeks ago, a month ago? He talked about pedaling and pushing. Our life should not be about trying harder. What's, what's the joy of being a Christ follower if we're doing it all in our own strength? We cannot defeat greed and gluttony and bitterness and pride and all that in our own strength. We can't do it. It has to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6 says, not by strength, not by might, but what? By your spirit. And if you're here today or you're streaming online and you're just getting, just starting on your faith journey and you maybe haven't taken that step of faith, 
What, what I'm talking about is God didn't only give us the gift of eternal life through his price on the cross. He gave us the gift of his spirit, of his very presence inside us. The way, that's how we can, in Galatians, can, can have peace, patience, love, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are not things that we like. I worked really hard at self-control, so I've got it now. It's just this outpouring of the spirit in our life. So we can't control things by ourselves. We can't control our need for control. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't made that decision and you want to talk to somebody about what the freedom of that is like, there's, there's people that pray here at the end of the service. You can come find me. Don't miss that opportunity. The only way that we can get past our need for control is on our knees. It's through learning from the stories of mess-ups in here, from worship, from coming together in community and gathering, from getting in a small group in a few weeks so you can do life together and really ask hard questions of each other. Because if you're not around somebody that will say you're controlling, then you need deeper friends. We need someone to call it out in us because we see ourselves in a little better light sometimes. Point in case, me, when Greg maybe says that I'm being a little controlling, maybe a little, I deny, I'm like, well, I'm not controlling. I'm, I, somebody's got to, man, you know, I, I start to defend. And I prove his point that I am controlling. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And don't you know, just like Craig Rochelle says, this reveals where God wants to do his spiritual work. So let's just surrender to it and let God do his work in us. How exciting is that? That he meets us there? What a gift that is. In my laboratory of control, the past three decades with my health, you would think that I would be a pro at this. But this remodel has put me to the test, I will tell you. I'm reminded that control is simply an illusion. Perfection never happens. Plans don't usually work out. It's how I respond, how we respond, is the only thing that we can control. And the only thing that we can control is, is allowing God to do his work in us. To meet him where we're at and truly, truly surrender. My desire, our, our, our struggles that are going on in here, the things we want to control, the gluttony we struggle with, the bitterness we struggle with, the pride, it simply reveals what's inside. And God is interested in that. God wants to transform that, not by us trying harder, not by us doing all the good things, but by the power that can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's refining us in every circumstance. So join me in the halting to resist and try to control. Will you join me in that? To invite God to grow that in us? Because what would it look like if all the sickness within that we've been talking about was literally a spiritual springboard for transformation? Wouldn't that give glory to God? 
Wouldn't that transform us individually and collectively? Oh, I, I pray for that. So your action steps this week are to answer all those questions, questions that I, sorry, it's a little more homework than usual, but they're good things for you to reflect on. Then I'd like for you to make a date with a friend and I want you to share, talk about the series. And I really want you to get honest about what you struggled with the most. That's that, that's that vulnerability, accountability. And then my, my, make, a, make a date, make an make a action step towards that, whether that's I'm going to get in a small group or I'm going to start meeting with somebody individually. I'm going to read my Bible every day. Whatever it is that you're going to take action. Because if you've heard all these sermons and gone, wow, I really struggle with that and not take action, then, then it's for naught. Okay, let's pray for you. God, thank you for your word. I praise you for Abraham and Sarah and the way you use them in spite of themselves. God, forgive us when we try to take control. Forgive me when I try to take control. Would you use it to spiritually transform us into exactly who you want us to be? We surrender to that today, God. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Melinda. What we're going to do now <clears throat> is we're going to continue to worship by observing communion. And if you walked in, you might have seen the tables. Uh, you weren't sure what they're for. The elements are there. And, and communion, I just want to make sure that we're all comfortable. Communion is for all those who are followers of Jesus, whether you're a member of this church or not a member of this church. And if you're not a follower of Christ, then we don't want to put you in a position where you're doing something that you... You don't understand. That just wouldn't be good for anybody. So if you walk past those tables, let me just give you a moment if you want to get up like some are already doing. Sean Naylor leading the way. Angelique, very nice. Uh, you can go back and grab the cups that look just like this. There's a cellophane on top of the bread that you can get to, and then we'll peel another layer to get back to the juice. But before we do that, I want to tell you that you hold in your hands something that's very dangerous in a sense. And at the same time, it's very powerful. And that's kind of what the gospel is. Jesus' is good news. It's something that's very, very dangerous. It's a dangerous message. But it's power to freedom. And it's power to a new life. And what I mean by that is when we, when we take communion, in order for your hearts to be right, for my heart to be right, what we're saying is that we have sinned and that we're broken and we need a Savior. And every one of us in this room and everyone who's watching online, we're broken. And we spend a lot of energy and time, maybe even money, to try to live that down or to hide that in some way. But that's not who we are here. We, we are broken people. I, I've said this periodically throughout the years. And I've said, if you knew some of the thoughts I had in my head, you would not be sitting where you're sitting and listening to anything I have to say. At the same time, if I knew some of the thoughts in your head, we wouldn't let you in this place. And that's just, that's just how it is because we're all broken in that way. And so when we hold this and we observe communion, what we're saying is that we need a Savior. And his name is Jesus. Amen. And Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he took the wine, and he gave them an amazing demonstration of what he was about to do so that they could remember it in terms and in a way they could understand. He, he said the bread 
is his body. He says, I'm gonna, my body's going to be broken for you. And he was certainly speaking to the fact that he was going to be nailed to a cross. And then he took the wine. He said, this is my blood. He said, my blood's going to be shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins and our sins. So I want you just to take a moment before we start peeling stuff back. I just want to take a moment and I want us to just feel the weight of our sin. And, and this is what the gospel is. The gospel is that you are more broken and I am more broken than we really want to believe, than we really want to understand. But at the same time, simultaneously, we are more loved than we could ever dare imagine. And that, my friends, is what Timothy Keller, one of my favorites, how he condensed the gospel down. So I want us to take a moment quietly, and I want for all of us, just to, as we hold on to something so dangerous, and it's dangerous because it means we have to acknowledge that we need a Savior, and we cannot do it. And just confess your sins to God. And just think about what Jesus did so that we could be new people in Christ. Let's take a moment to do that. Let's, if you would, let's peel off the first layer and hold the bread together. When Jesus said, as he took the bread, he said, this is my body. What we need to understand about that is that God, who is spirit, came down in the person of Jesus Christ, who had a physical body. And we need, as our Savior, a physical body, a, a, a person who is not only fully God but fully human to go before us, to live the perfect life we couldn't live. And he did that. And then he voluntarily, sacrificially gave of his life, his human body, to absorb the right judgment of God for the sins of the world and for your sins and my sins. And when we take this bread, we acknowledge and we remember that our sins we're transferred in a way, and, and Jesus was treated in a way as if he committed our sins so that we could be forgiven. Take this now in remembrance of that. Now peel back the second layer. When Jesus took the wine, and he said, metaphorically, this is, this is my blood. To a Jew, those are powerful words. You see, Jews annually, and even more so throughout the year, there were times for sacrifices in which they would bring their sacrifices to the temple, unblemished. And the blood would be poured out over the altar as a symbolic reference to God's forgiveness for their sins for that year. 
And they would do it year after year after year after year. And finally, the writer of Hebrews tells us that there was a one perfect final sacrifice whose blood was sufficient, not from an animal, from a human being. And so Jesus would take this, this is my blood, and drink it for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's take this, mindful that Jesus' blood was shed so that we could be forgiven past, present, and future. Father, thank you for the command to remember something so dangerous and yet so powerful. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Acknowledging, Lord God, that we are more broken than we ever really want to think about. But God, we thank you for his sacrificial death. And God, thank you for his resurrection to know that we are more loved than we ever dared imagine. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.